but God, in the stillness, come meet us. Amen. So I have a confession to make this morning. I am a procrastinator. And I have gotten so much better over the years at not leaving things to the last minute, especially important things, but sometimes my procrastination tendencies still sneak in. And this was definitely one of those weeks where I really procrastinated with this sermon. And then when I went and read the scripture again, I had to laugh out loud because I thought, oh my, here I am procrastinating writing a sermon about a parable that seems to offer a prescription for being ready. <laughs> so I was describing the parable to my sister, and then I said, you know, I can't talk to you anymore because I have to go write a sermon, and there isn't any oil in my lamp. And you know what she said to me? I have some, but I'm not going to share. <laughs> so bridesmaids, oil, lamps, a wedding party, and a bridegroom. Hmm. This parable is not easy. You know, we've been talking about metaphor as we've been going through this series about parables. And this one, I think, is probably more of an allegory. And somebody several weeks ago asked me if I thought allegory was the same as metaphor, and I said, no, I don't think so, but I'm not really sure how it's different. So I'm going to have to think on that one. So um, from the research that I did, they're similar, but a metaphor uses a word or a phrase to represent an idea or a comparison. Maybe more like the first week, where... The, the two parables that we had were much more straightforward, much more like little snippets that answered the question very directly. What is the kingdom of God like? The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of God is like a merchant searching for a fine pearl. On the other hand, an allegory uses the entire narrative to express an idea or to teach a lesson. And I think this parable that we have today demands an allegorical interpretation. Now, there is a very traditional allegorical interpretation that's often used as a lens for this story. You might have heard it before, but I'm, I'm going to recap it, almost at the risk of introducing poor theology, but here it is, okay? In a, in a simple, straightforward way, so often the allegorical lens that is used for this parable is this. The bridesmaids represent the church, the bridegroom represents Jesus. The wedding banquet is heaven. So using this lens, some of us in the church are like the wise bridesmaids. We are ready to meet Jesus in heaven. We've been born again. We're living out the Christian life. On the other hand, some of us in the church are still like the foolish bridesmaids. We are not actually ready. To meet Jesus in heaven. We come to church, but we fall short of fulfilling the expectation. So when Jesus shows up, and he will, some of us are going to get in right away. And the rest of us will be off somewhere else trying to buy their way into the kingdom. And so not only will the foolish ones among us miss meeting Jesus, but when we go back and knock... Jesus says, I don't even know you. Ouch. Closed door. Slammed in the face. And locked with a deadbolt, probably, 
so there's no chance of breaking it. So using this allegorical lens, this parable becomes a finger wagging in your face, right? You better get ready, and you better do it now, because Jesus is coming any minute. It could happen any time. So, you know, if I think about this parable with this lens, I really better break this procrastination habit really fast, or it could have eternal consequences for me. <laughs> okay, that just, whew. All right. I find this interpretation of this parable so disturbing. I mean, anybody else feel just slightly uneasy with that, right? I mean, this flies in the face of everything I know about Jesus and his behavior in the Gospels. I mean, Jesus is the one over and over who keeps drawing the circle wider and wider for who is included. But think of the story of the Syrophoenician woman who challenges Jesus, and eventually Jesus tells her that she and her daughter can eat the crumbs from the table of the chosen Jewish people thus opening the door for those who previously couldn't even knock. And Jesus himself went through the forbidden land of Samaria, giving water to the thirsty Samaritan woman to drink. And by doing that and by engaging in that conversation with her about living water, he drew the circle wider to include the Gentiles, the women, those with a questionable reputation. Even at the end of Matthew's own gospel, which this parable comes from, it is after Jesus' death when he appears to the disciples, and he appears to all of them, the wise ones who believed, and the foolish who have questioned and lost their faith in his presence. He appears to all of them, and he commissions all of them to go out and to share the good news with their perfection and their failings. And so it makes me wonder if we just don't know how to use this parable. Maybe we don't quite have the right lens to see with our eyes. Maybe we don't quite have the right aid to hear with our ears. It makes me think a little bit of a clay pot that I inherited in one of my previous churches in the pastor's office, we always inherit things in the pastoral office. There's always something there. Am I right? We have a few retired preachers here, right? There's always something there that you're like, hmm, what is this? It is now mine for the duration of my tenure here. So there was a little clay pot. It's what I thought it was. I really had no idea. It was white. It had a little Methodist cross and flame on it. It was made of clay, and it looked handmade. It was like kind of lopsided to one side. And it did have a hole in the middle of it, and it had some little white fluff sticking out of the middle of that hole. So one day, one of my, I was just on a shelf in my office. I just left it there, put my books around it, and was like, okay, clay pot decoration. So one day, one of my congregation members came into my office, and he asked me if I'd used the candle yet. And I was like, what candle? So he pointed to the clay pot. Oh, that's a candle. I just simply said, no, I haven't used it yet. But I was curious. So I brought a match to the office, right? And I lit that little white fluff that was sticking out of the top of the hole. It was a wick, apparently. 
Well, it burned and it smoked so much that I thought I was gonna set off the fire alarm and I couldn't get it put out fast enough and it left black suit everywhere. So I threw that clay pot in the trash can. <laughs> I thought it seemed to be a little bit more of a fire hazard than a candle. So we can fast forward a few years and I served another church that, by golly, had one of those clay pots on their altar. <laughs> and guess what? We had to put oil in that thing every few weeks. So it didn't get dry. You follow me? My poor little clay pot wasn't trash. It just needed some oil and probably some wick trimming. But I had the wrong lens and I did not know what to do with that thing. And I could not see it for what it was and so it became useless to me. So I want us to look at this parable again because I do think it's an allegory, but I think it's an allegory in a different kind of way. So Jesus is the one telling the parable and it's unique to Matthew's gospel. So Matthew is primarily speaking to a Jewish audience, right? These are the ones who have over 600 rules to follow. And as they're figuring out what it means to follow Jesus, they're trying to figure out which ones they're supposed to be following and which ones they're not, right? And Jesus is still here, so they're probably not very far along that journey. They're still probably trying to follow all 600. And because of this, they can really tend toward legalism. But I want you to think about in the sense that Matthew Wright is writing this to an audience of people who've been trying to follow all 600 rules. They can tend toward legalism. And they've been told about Jesus' ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And they've been told that he's coming back, and he's coming back soon. And they're waiting. And they're waiting. And they're waiting. And they're waiting. And they're starting to get impatient and maybe just a little bit tired of trying to figure out which of the 600 rules they still have to follow as Christians and which ones they can now leave behind. Because when you're thinking that Jesus will come back soon, even a few years is a long time to wait. And they want to be ready and their leaders want, to be, want, to, want them to be ready too. And so I want you to take that into account as, as we look at this, this allegory with that lens. I think the bridesmaids are the people in the community. And it's, it's, I don't think it's that the bridegroom is Jesus as much as the bridegroom is the Messiah that the people are waiting for. And they have expectations about who this Messiah will be and what the Messiah will do. And there is a system by which the community runs that has caused them to create these expectations. I think the wedding banquet, it is a party. I think it's what they expect the kingdom of God to be. A special party for the people who followed all the rules. And so I want you to use this allegorical lens with me as we look at this parable again. You know, five of these ten bridesmaids are called wives. And that word could also be translated as cunning or prudent. They are prepared, if nothing else. They have followed the rules. They've showed up. They're ready. They have extra oil. They, they realize it could be a long time before the bridegroom comes, and so they're ready to wait. And they don't really have time for the people who haven't followed the instructions, because who would show up with it? 
to a vigil without any oil anyway. They are concerned about themselves and making sure that they get a place at the table. And because it's such a long time to wait, they fall asleep. But when they're awakened quickly, it doesn't matter that they were asleep because they're ready, just as the rules require them to be. So when the other five ask for some of their oil, the answer is clearly, go get your own. The other five, who are called foolish in our story, are here to be together. They got the invitation, they showed up with their lamps, they didn't really have enough oil, they really didn't think about the long wait. And they fell asleep too. And when they wake up, they realize they've run out of oil and it's a problem. Now they think that they cannot meet the bridegroom without a burning lamp. It's one of the rules of the community and they have to play by the rules. So they look around them and they see a community full of resources. Say, could we have some of your oil? <laughs> no. Go get your own. And so in accordance to the rules, they need oil, they must have it, and apparently the only way to get it is to leave and go by their own. And so they leave the vigil in search of the so our bridegroom, Messiah, comes and also acts in accordance with the rules, too. Five are there, ready, with burning lamps that have trimmed wicks, filled to the brim with oil, and they get into the wedding banquet, the long-awaited, imagined kingdom of God. And so when those other five return, the door is closed and it won't be open. This is how those who followed the rules imagined it to be. This is how those whom the system benefits envisioned it to be. In the parable, the bridegroom shuts the door and some are in and some are out for eternity. It doesn't matter why some of the ten have access to extra oil and some don't. It doesn't matter why some of the ten have a selfish attitude and are unwilling to share their resources. It doesn't matter why some of the ten have to leave in order to play by the system's rules when it ultimately means they won't get back in. I want you just in your mind's eye to imagine those who are listening to Jesus telling this story. I mean, can you see those who are quite certain which of the bridesmaids they are smiling when they hear this parable? Can you see the ones who deem themselves to be ready nodding along while casting judging looks toward those beside them? Can you hear the cackle in the room as the five foolish women are denied entrance to the wedding banquet? And the very last line of this scripture is Jesus interpreting this parable with a single crisp sentence. This is what it says in the version we read this morning. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So I have to wonder, knowing who Jesus is, 
and reading the stories about who he includes and the way that he behaves all throughout the Gospels. Is this simple interpretation, this one sentence, is it actually a judgment on the parable itself? Is it a way to flip it on its head? Is this command a way for Jesus to reverse the expectations of what will happen when the Messiah comes? And I have to wonder if a better translation would be something more like, Come on, guys, wake up! Wake up! Can't you see? Can't you hear? This is what you expected me to say. This is how you expected the parable to end. But this isn't the kingdom of God. Wake up! And stay awake. It's not about judgment. It's not about exclusion. In fact, no one knows the day or the hour. It's not even about a specific time in a chronological sense. It's about living with the reversal of expectations. So I don't know how many out, out there, how many of you remember Y2K? I remember this. I'm going to tell you all how old I was. That was the year I graduated from high school. So it was like, the world is going to end, right? You will not have a future. <laughs> Don't worry about your college plans, right? That was the year the world was supposed to end because computers were programmed to only handle a two-digit year, and they would all assume that the double zero meant the year 1900. Turned out not to be true, right? In 2019, we can confidently say the world did not end unless all of us were left, maybe. <laughs> but you know, there have been other predictions, right, over the years that the world would end. And those who are making these proclamations are very, very sure of them. And perhaps Jesus' interpretation of this parable is a sharp nudge toward conversion, to living in the Kairos moment of sensing God's spirit moving, rather than the chronos time of order and sequence. You see, I think there is an invitation to change in Jesus' words. The parable that we talked about last week, we talked about how it is, it is moving us toward this, this idea that God has an open future for us. And I wonder if our invitation to change here is to wake up, to see it with fresh eyes, to hear with clear ears, to be diligent in realizing that the kingdom won't happen in the way that we thought it would, in the timing that we thought it would. I think for the five bridesmaids who are called foolish in this story, there is an invitation to identify their power. The power that they have in being half of the group, even if they don't have oil. In the parable, in a way, they give away their power. They end up just playing by the rules and leaving the vigil to get more power. Maybe they fail to realize that their most important role is to wait for the bridegroom whether they have oil or not. And that by leaving to go get the oil, they give in to the system that is set up and the odds are stacked against those who are waiting without any oil. 
What if they had simply stayed present, vigilant, waiting for the bridegroom? What if they had simply stayed vulnerable and together to change the rules with their presence, their bodies, and their insistence at welcoming the bridegroom anyway? And for the other five bridesmaids who are called wise or prudent or kind, I think there's an invitation to recognize their privilege that they in fact are the beneficiaries of the system as it is set up in the parable they not only refuse to share what they have with others but once they're inside the banquet hall they have no qualms about forgetting the other ones on the outside right the ones who had waited with what if they had shared the oil they had, trusting that it would be enough to last for everyone? Or what if once they were inside the banquet hall, enjoying the feast, they had worked tirelessly to advocate, to convince the bridegroom to change the rules and let the other five in, too? To say, wait, I know that one. She was waiting with me all that There is a quote on your bulletin from C. Joy Bell C. that says, There are two things we should always be, raw and ready. When you are raw, you are always ready, and when you are ready, you usually realize you are raw. Waiting for, for, waiting for perfection is not an answer. One cannot say, I will be ready when I am perfect, because you will never be ready. Rather, one must say, I am wrong, and I am ready. Just like this, right now, how and who I am. And so wake up, my friends, and stay awake. You don't know the day or the hour. You don't know all the rules. Be vigilant. Be raw. Be ready. Be present. Thanks be to God. Amen. Before we go to our final hymn this morning, um, I just want to take a moment to lift up. Um, I shared last Sunday that we had four among us who went to Minneapolis. Um, the, end, the last part of last week for the UM Forward um, conference that was convened by um, a group focusing on the voices of people of color and the voices of LGBTQ persons. Um, Brian Sutton was one of those and his uh, flight was delayed and so he's still traveling back but we actually were hoping to pray for him this morning because back to back he is also attending a conference at Church of the Resurrection, or I should say a conversation really, at Church of the Resurrection that starts tomorrow and goes through Wednesday. And Adam Hamilton is convening this conversation um, that is focused on next Methodism, next UMC, what the future might look like for our denomination. For the conference at CORE that starts tomorrow, individuals had to be um, nominated either by themselves or by someone else and then ultimately selected to attend. And Brian Sutton was one of 10 people from the Great Plains Annual Conference who was selected to be there as part of that conversation. 
And so though he's not um, here this morning, I want to invite us to pause for a moment of prayer for him and for all who will be gathering before we sing our final hymn. Oh God, we give you thanks for opportunities to serve you when they come our way. And we thank you uh, for this opportunity before Brian won among us. And we are so grateful, God, for his willingness to serve, to be part of these conversations about what the future of our denomination might look like and ways that we might lean into being fully inclusive and uh, bearers of your great love for all people in this world. And so, God, we thank you for the conversations that were had in Minneapolis this past week. We also entrust to you the conversations that will be going on at Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City this coming week. We pray for Brian as he travels. We pray for his strength, for his stamina, and that he might speak with words of grace and wisdom. We thank you, O oh God, for his life and for the lives of all who will, be, who will be part of these important conversations. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the risen Christ.